my name is Janet Webster-Jones. I am the founder and current owner and operator of Source Booksellers. We've been in business 30 years right here in Midtown Detroit. Nine million people filed for unemployment over the past two weeks. Unemployment is at a record high since the Great Depression. Small business owners like Janet are struggling to make it work. We've had to use a lot of of, uh, thinking energy. Uh, We had intentionally not done online sales, but this has been an advantage for us because it forced us to pivot to online sales and keep the business sort of running. We're not open to the public, of course, but we do receive deliveries and mail, and we're also mailing out uh, people who are buying online from us. So we're doing some of that as well. So we're weathering like that. I'm grateful for every single breath. (laughs) Just how bad will the economic consequences of COVID-19 be? We'll explore. This is America Dissected, and I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. I got to know Janet Webster-Jones because I was supposed to be speaking at her shop right about now. She owns one of Detroit's best independent nonfiction bookstores, and I just published a book. Alas, here we are. People like Janet and I are the lucky ones in this moment. Janet owns a small business and can maneuver her business around to take advantage of technology to sell books over the internet. Me? My business is mainly the exchange of knowledge, which I'm literally doing with you right now. And if I'm not podcasting... I'm using the internet to teach over Blackboard, or to speak on Zoom, or using a phone to talk to a reporter. Modern technology makes both my and Janet's work possible. We both work in the knowledge economy. But for a lot of folks, that's not possible. You can't manufacture a car over the internet. You can't make a sandwich, or cut hair, or install a roof, either. And if you can't do these things, you can't be paid for them. Which means you can't turn around and use your money to buy stuff. The economy relies on people exchanging things, goods, services, information, in exchange for payment. People then use their payment to turn around and buy those exact same things, onward and upward. But all that requires people engaging with each other for those exchanges in the first place. What happens when a major pandemic hits and you're told by public officials that you actually can't interact with each other? That those interactions could threaten your life and the lives of people around you? Health officials telling everyone to avoid leaving the house at all costs. Governor Gavin Newsom of California has issued a stay-at-home order for the entire state. Nearly 500,000 people in Atlanta are ordered to stay home at least for two weeks. For people like Janet and I, or any of you, if your new core in life involves endless Zoom meetings, people who benefit from the means of access to the knowledge economy, we can use modern tech to continue to trade information, even if it's glitchy, your kids don't quite cooperate in the background, or you have to deal with trolls porn bombing your Zoom. Another issue that's popped up in the last few days has given us a new phrase, Zoom bombing. Zoom bombing is when someone's involved in a virtual meeting and someone, someone infiltrates that meeting, that virtual meeting, usually typically taking over that meeting. But for so many others, day laborers or hourly wage workers, social distancing means staying home and watching your resources dwindle. Or it means putting either yourself or your family in harm's way by going to work to earn a paycheck. For them, social distancing comes at a deep financial cost. And at least in theory, most of Congress's $2.2 trillion package is about alleviating that cost. But that forces us to contend with a bigger question. If the economy is about people exchanging stuff, what happens when we can't? Not just for a few weeks, but maybe for a few months. We've got a supply side 
People like Janet, who's selling books to folks in Detroit, and corporations like Amazon, who really ought to pay taxes, selling everything to everyone. We've got the demand side, people like you and me and people who buy stuff everywhere. To keep the economy afloat, we need both. And if either lag, or both lag, what will it mean for our economy? We'll talk to economist Tara Sinclair, a macroeconomist who will explain to us what we're facing, the difference between a recession and a depression, and what it means for us as we stare down this pandemic. After the break. Professor Tara Sinclair is a macroeconomist who's been thinking a lot about how COVID-19 affects our economy. Professor Sinclair, I'm, I'm a doctor, uh, and I, I don't know as much about the economy uh, as certainly you do, but it feels to me like we're actively pumping the brakes on people exchanging stuff because we're all, of course, in our houses and people have had to shut down their businesses. Um, is that the right way to think about an economy or am I getting it wrong? Well, I think that is very much the situation we're finding ourselves in right now is that typically we would be going out, buying stuff. And when we're buying stuff, that means somebody else is selling the stuff and that you know, filters throughout the system. And so what I am producing, somebody else is buying and then we're trading. And that's really what makes our whole economy run. And we have just you know, rather dramatically shut down large parts of that. And that's something that our policymakers really weren't designed or didn't plan to think about that way. That wasn't part of any of the normal policy playbook that we've been looking at for a long time. Uh, and what is the difference for a layperson between a recession and a depression. I always just thought a recession was a fancy way of saying a depression to put like a fig leaf on it when you didn't really want to call it a depression. Right. Well, actually, there's some truth to that. Uh, so I'm, I'm not an economic historian, but the lore that I have heard in discussing whether we call something a recession or a depression is really about a uh, it, we used to call every recession a depression, but then after the Great Depression, uh, there was a sense that maybe we needed to have you know, different terms for when things were really bad or less bad. And so a recession is more now thought of as just you know, not as bad as a depression. And when will we know if we're actually in recession slash depression territory? This gets tricky because our normal signals are all flashing that we're in a recession right now. If we think about tracking any of the normal economic indicators that would normally signal that we're in a recession, if we look at what's happening in terms of unemployment, we haven't gotten the latest total unemployment numbers, but just looking at unemployment claims that we got last week, those are signaling a, you know, a very severe recession. If we look at what our projections are for GDP growth, those are looking really dire. Uh, but again, when economists think about a recession, you know, in a, in, a, in a sense of where standard policy can help, that looks different than what we're seeing right now. You know, we're, we're seeing sectors actively being shut down, which isn't necessarily that people don't want to go shop. It's that they're told they can't go shop right now. Mm. I, I talked to a, uh, a woman who owns a small business. She's a bookstore owner in Detroit, and she's talking about the Herculean effort she's putting into keeping her store open and uh, moving everything online and, and, and trying to deliver books that way. We know that this is hurting a lot of different kinds of, uh, of economic participants um, in different ways and also comes in a moment where we are as a society and as an economy profoundly unequal. 
And so, you know, for folks like the small business owner, um, you know, she's making a good um, a good living through her shop, but uh, but it's precarious. And then you've got folks who are you know potentially working in a shop like that, who are working hourly wages. And then you've got folks uh, who work gigs. Um, can can you talk about um, how we ought to be thinking about trying to respond to the different ways that um, that this this downturn is affecting these different groups of people, and how you know if we think about it as being a, between a push and a pull, um, how we make sure that the lack of push, the supply, uh, doesn't turn into a lack of pull um, when people are in effect being just completely X'd out of the economy and having to fend for you know, very, very basic needs for themselves and their families. Yeah, well, first of all, I'm kudos to the the bookstore owner that is really trying to move her business in new directions. And that's one of the things that I really appreciate about American Ingenuity is even in these tough times, people are trying to find ways to still make their businesses work. And that is one of the reasons why we have certain incentives built into policies to not completely freeze the economy where it is right now and just start it up again. Because we do have the sense that some business owners may get creative and we want to have them do that in the meantime. Um, But it's true that when we're thinking about the state of inequality, this is one of those situations where it's really clear that the service workers did not bring COVID-19 upon us. And yet they're having to bear a lot of this cost. Uh, and I, I think that's really where a lot of the push for a, you know, a, a relief package, uh, which is separate, I would say, from a stimulus package. So this is just about you know, taking care of people that have been told that they can't go to work right now when you know, that's not at all their fault or responsibility. They were all, all you know, responsibly choosing work, and yet that, that work isn't there right now. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to the question about um, the the $2.2 trillion stimulus slash relief package that that was passed. And, um, you know, we saw uh, in there a, a one-time cash disbursement for folks who earn less than a certain amount of money. Uh, we saw an extended, as uh, I think Senator Chuck Schumer would call it, um, unemployment on steroids. Uh, and then we saw um, money for small businesses to the tune of about $377 billion. And then the most um, sort of politically uh, hot part of it, which was $500 billion uh, in stimulus for uh, major corporations, though with some oversight that didn't exist uh, in the past. Can you break that down a little bit and and talk to us about how that maps onto um, this sort of push and pull uh, in the economy and uh, where you think that, you know, that that is enough and where you think it it might not be enough um, in terms of being able to stabilize our economy uh, and hopefully allow us to catch it on the back end of, of this pandemic? Sure. Well, so the, the the first thing is that I would characterize this package more as a relief package, less as a stimulus package. But they go hand in hand. The idea is that if we have less impact on people's income today, then hopefully when our economy is ready to be turned back on again, they will feel comfortable to go and spend. And so there there is that piece to it. But I don't think that that's really the objective of this legislation. Uh, It's not so much focused on making sure that the economy is healthy later on down the line. It's very much recognizing that we're putting it in a sense in the freezer for a little while. Um, And so breaking down these different components from kind of 
um, you know, economists most agree with it versus there's more diverse opinions on it. So the, the unemployment insurance on steroids makes a lot of sense, right? So that policy is directly targeted at people who are being impacted and it is a system that's already in place, so it should ma- work relatively quickly. Uh, and so that one seems like a really clear win uh, in, in terms of policy. Um, the cash to individuals, so that one is in part supposed to catch people who don't qualify for unemployment insurance, but who may very much also be impacted. But it's hard to necessarily carefully target people and having to have a system where people would have to come in and apply would be you know, just too much paperwork and would be incredibly slow. And one thing that we want here from both a relief as well as a stimulus perspective is to be timely. And so one way to be timely is to just send out checks to everyone. That can be much faster than trying to identify individuals who are impacted. Um, And so, and also, you know, if you think about just, you know, uh, from an incentive or understanding what people's needs perspective, economists, we love cash. Like we're the people that give out cash at Christmas time because we're like, I don't know exactly what you want for Christmas, but money, you can get whatever you want. And I think that that's what we're thinking about here. Just if there are people who have needs rather than trying to identify those needs and then have the government determine you know, how to deliver that particular product to people, just give them money and let them use the market to sort it out. Um, now, of course, that hopefully means that there is enough of a market that people can get what they need. Uh, there, there are still concerns about if this is very protracted, that we might continue to have more and more supply chain disruptions to where we, we might face some, some shortages in certain, er- in certain areas. So you, you talk about the, the need to pull down the barriers um, that may exist to people just getting money and then potentially using it in what's a, a basically a truncated economy. Um, would you support uh, a broader universal basic income uh, in in this moment, and then even moving forward, considering the inequality we talked about earlier? Well, I think you know the the terminology universal basic income comes with a lot of political baggage, but I, broadly, the idea of um, you know having the government be an insurer against these sorts of you know, global economic shocks. That makes a lot of sense to me as a policy. And um, you know, the insurance should pay out to everybody who's impacted. And in my view, everybody is impacted right now. Mm. Um, and so that's more how I, I would think about it. But, um, but broadly speaking, uh, you know, cash to people is going to help right now. They, even, even though you know, there might be a limited number of things that we can buy. And you know, for people who are facing rent bills and... Utility bills, and you know we're all supposed to have our kids learning from home on their laptops. But what if we aren't able to pay for those expenses? This is seems like that that just makes a lot of sense um, for for a lot of reasons right now. But it's something that policymakers really seem to have not had very much of a, a, a plan for anything nearly this big. The other interesting question that that I think comes up that. um, that, that was raised here uh, is about this trade-off that um, some policymakers want to suggest there is between between taking on this pandemic and doing what we need to do to stop viral transmission um, and to quote-unquote flatten the curve versus saving the economy. And it's been presented as a bit of a trade-off, but 
you know, to, to my mind, it seems to me that if you're telling people that they risk potentially contracting a fatal disease, uh, if they go out and about, it's not like you can just turn the economy back on because there's uh, a clear reason why a lot of people just won't be a part of that. Um, can you talk about that, that trade-off if it exists at all? Yeah. So first of all, economists have come out pretty strongly in support of the idea that there is not a trade-off here, that you're taking care of our people's health is the right thing to do for our economic success and that the, the the better and the faster we control and treat this virus, the healthier and stronger our workforce is going to be and therefore the healthier and stronger our economy is going to be in the longer term. And if that means that we need to borrow from the future in order to be able to you know, in, invest in taking care of the health of our people right now, that's absolutely the right investment to make. And then the the last question uh, I will um, ask is, you know, it, it may be, and it's sad to say, but a lot of small businesses who don't have the reserve um, to see this thing through, it may be that they just go under. And what does the small business economy look like after uh, this pandemic? How um, how do people get back on their feet when, you know, so many restaurants and bookstores and uh, other uh, facilities just have to shut down? Um, what 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 does it look like afterwards and, and how do we facilitate folks rebuilding, picking up the pieces and keeping keeping going? Yeah, I think there are two different scenarios here that I've been you know, kind of going back and forth thinking about. It, one possibility is that we have winners and losers here. We have the restaurants that did have enough, happen to have enough cash on hand or were able to do a robust enough takeout and delivery service to hang on. And so those restaurants rebuild. And then other people who had restaurant ambitions before but hadn't opened a restaurant before or um, you know, were in other areas start opening restaurants. And we end up with a different mix of small businesses and you know, restaurants and other, other groups, but it's still a robust sector. So that's one possibility. Uh, the other possibility, which I think is more disconcerting, is that we do see a further shift towards larger businesses over smaller businesses. And that's, I say it's disconcerting because there's been a lot of economic research lately that's really been focused on concerns about employers gaining what we call monopsony power or where employers have more bargaining power than their workers. And that tends to happen with larger, more concentrated businesses. And so if that's what ends up happening, if it ends up that you know, big businesses are the winners here and small businesses are the losers, then we might worry about that distributional impact and what that means for workers. Thank you. Um, really appreciate you uh, taking the time to, to explain the economy to us and, um, and what the implications of this pandemic might be for the long term is really, really helpful. And um, so beyond you as a macroeconomist, you as a person, how are you um, dealing with this pandemic? And, you know, how are you uh, keeping yourself and, and your family uh, safe and healthy and sane in these times? Well, it, to be honest, the, the big thing is a lot of video conference calls. Uh, it does make such a difference to be able to see people's faces. And so I've really been enjoying that. And that's actually how I do a lot of my work with collaborators around the world anyway. So a lot of that seems pretty familiar to me. 
but I've also had an interesting conversation earlier today with a colleague where we were talking about what we say to each other when we say, how are you? Mm. And we've, we've decided on the exchange of we each say we're fine and then we each tell each other it's great that you're fine. Mm. That's really thoughtful. Um, I really appreciate you sharing that. And uh, thank you so much for your insights and your time today. And uh, stay safe, stay healthy, um, stay indoors. And uh, we hope that uh, we get to connect again on the back end of this to, to see how it all sorts out. Really appreciate your time today. Yes, thank you. I really appreciate your show. As I wrapped up my conversation with Professor Sinclair, it got me thinking more broadly about the nature of our economy in general. As we face down COVID and see the consequences it's having for low-income folks all over the country, what does it even mean to disaster-proof our economy? In a lot of ways, we're so vulnerable right now because so many people are forced to cling to the very edge of economic viability to begin with, struggling to pay for health care, housing, utilities, and hold down a job in the middle of the greatest pandemic humanity has seen for over a century. And even before then, people were falling off the edge every day. Cancer causing bankruptcy, urban homelessness at a record high, water shutoffs in major U.S. cities like my hometown in Detroit. Though these weren't a consequence of a one big disaster like COVID-19, they were each a mini-disaster happening millions of times a day all over America. As we emerge from this, it won't just be enough to go back to normal. For a lot of people, normal wasn't all that normal to begin with. We need to build a more equitable, just, and sustainable normal, where we guarantee health care, provide a living wage, and guarantee basic utilities to folks. As usual, on our way out, I want to tell you what I'm watching right now. The White House announced a recommendation that Americans should wear masks when outside. The CDC is advising the use of non-medical cloth face covering. The cloth face coverings recommended are not surgical masks or N95 respirators. Those are critical supplies that must continue to be reserved for healthcare workers and other medical first responders, as recommended by the current CDC guidance. This is voluntary. I don't think I'm going to be doing it. In and of themselves, cloth masks may protect people from larger respiratory droplets that can carry coronavirus. But policy changes can have unintended consequences. Will this mean that people may think that it's okay to interact more if they're wearing a mask and stop social distancing? Will this put more of a premium on already limited N95 masks? And then there's this. And the other thing that we've bought a tremendous amount of is the hydroxychloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, which I think, as you know, it's a great malaria drug. It's worked unbelievably. It's a powerful drug on malaria. Uh, and there are signs that it works on this, some very strong signs. What doesn't seem to be understood here is that science is not an outcome. It's a process. It's not a body of knowledge. And there just isn't enough rigorous evidence to substantiate what he's saying. Don't get me wrong. It'd be amazing if there was a treatment for COVID-19, and it'd be great if that was hydroxychloroquine. But we just can't say it is without the evidence. So what'll be the fallout? Will the run on hydroxychloroquine mean that people who need this medication to treat other diseases go without it? What will the data that emerges actually say about safety and efficacy? Lastly, I want to hear about your quarantine. Email us a voice memo at americadissected at crooked.com, and you just might hear your voice in our next podcast. That's all for today. But if you'd like to support organizations leading the fight to support our most vulnerable during this pandemic, donate to Crooked Media's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com slash coronavirus. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. 
Our producer is Austin Fisher. Stephen Hoffman is our senior producer. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra and Sydney Rapp. The theme song is by Takayasuzawa and Alex Ugiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>